Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. Leviticus 23, verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. Father, as we look at these appointed times and consider them, we pray that your Holy Spirit would show us the freshness of these feasts, these celebrations of Israel. That, Father, you would make application in our lives and in our hearts. That as we study through your word, you'd show us how not only were these things important to the people of Israel, but they matter to us, and they give us pictures, once again portrayals. Father, they are of great significance. And I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning and would illuminate your word so that we might understand and know you better. Make these things, Father, clear to us and help us to walk more closely with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew chapter 16, you just keep your finger there in Leviticus 23. You don't have to turn to Matthew unless you want to. But Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees were told. The Pharisees, Sadducees, two groups of Jewish leaders, they were both Sadducees. They both didn't really have it all together. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they came up and tested Jesus and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, do the math. This is Matthew chapter 16. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you know many, multiple signs had been done by them. Jesus had been performing miracles. He had been teaching with an authority they had not yet seen. The people were amazed by him. They were gathering around him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees tested him by asking for yet another sign. Listen to Jesus' response. He replied to them and he said, When it's evening, you will say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you not know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, he says. You can check the weather, you can look at the sky and have some sense of what's coming, but you don't even know how to determine the signs of the times. Don't miss the significance of Jesus' words for these leaders because they are for us as well today. We get up in the morning, we look around at the sky and we have a sense in that moment, hmm, we might have some rain today. Or, oh, it looks clear. This is going to be a beautiful day. We have a sense of what's coming just by looking at the weather. And Jesus would say, you cannot discern the signs of the times. Jesus said, these leaders of Israel, and by the way, us, should be able to discern the signs of the times. Why are you talking about this, Rick? Because the history of Israel is not a series of random events. Any more than the Old Testament scriptures are a haphazard collection of arbitrary writings. This isn't just off-the-wall stuff. It was kind of collected over the years, eventually put together and called the Holy Book. This book is by design. This book is for the purpose of helping us to discern the times in which we live. 
To know, to understand how to walk in these days, which the Bible says are evil days. Unfortunately, as the philosopher Hegel once said, the only thing history teaches us is that we do not learn from history. That's about all we get out of history. Paul said the following about his own people, the Jews. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, he said, To them belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. By the way, it's a great verse if you wonder, is Jesus God? Well, Paul says he is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Sounds like Paul thought so. But what are you saying by all this? Simply this. The Jewish people had everything they needed to see the coming of Messiah. When Jesus came on the scene, there was no reason for it to be a surprise. Nobody should have been shocked, for God had been setting up the whole thing, prelude, all the way up until Jesus showed up on the earth. Jesus came right on schedule. But so many missed Him. So many never saw Him. He was here, miraculously. Healing, teaching, loving, and people still miss him. These leaders testing him couldn't see him standing right in front of them. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. But interestingly, in John 1 verse 4, the apostle writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Referencing Isaiah, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Oh, the light was there. The light was shining. The light was clear, but the darkness couldn't see it. Those living in the shadows couldn't understand why. Why is it that Israel, with all that was given to them prior to the coming of Christ, why did so many of the Jewish people miss His coming the first time? Very simply, gang, they didn't understand the prophetic scriptures. They didn't understand the future and what God was doing. They could only look back to the past. Oh, the event, the coming out of Egypt was phenomenal. It was amazing. It was powerful. But the Jewish people hung their hats on that event. Even to this day, the Jewish people in the world hang their hats on the event of the rescue out of Egypt, which was a wonderful, fantastic event. But gang, that was then and this is now. If we spend our lives, by the way, there's a good principle here, looking back, looking at the past, drawing to things done to us or against us or even for us, if that's where we live, we will not see the coming of Christ. We will not because we're not looking to the future. Our eyes are not open to the things that He is going to do. We're so focused on the things that He did. What's amazing to me is some of the leaders knew the prophecies. They had some sense of what was supposed to happen. In Matthew chapter 2, you remember the story, the, the story that's read so much in this season. King Herod asked the Jewish leaders, brought them all in, and he said, Hey, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they replied, quoting Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which reads as follows. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. They quoted this verse. 
They said, Messiah's coming, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, King Herod, that's where he's going to be born. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But the very guys who quoted this verse miss him. Didn't see it. Oops. There was a child born in Bethlehem. There was a miraculous moment when the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. They did not see Him. They missed Yeshua HaMashiach, the Hebrew for Jesus, the Messiah. They never saw Him. How about you and me? What about us? Will we be among those who read the signs of our times and see the coming of Jesus? Will we, as Paul encourages, be children of light or will we choose to walk in the darkness? And gang, every single one of you have that choice. Do you realize that this morning? You can walk in the light. You can be a child of the light. You can see what's coming. You can know what's coming. You don't have to be some learned scholar. You don't have to be a pastor, an elder, some kind of a leader in the church. Every person calling on the name of the Lord that is saved can see His coming, can be a child of light. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, You brothers are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. And I would add as a caveat to that, so why do we live that way? Why do we act like we're in the darkness? Why do I wonder, huh, what's happening this week? I don't know. What's going to happen next? What about next year? I don't know what's happening in my life. Lord, I just need some help here. We are children of the light. And Jesus would say to all your worries about the future, I'm coming. I'm coming. Keep watch. I'm coming. This is why we continue to return to prophecy. This is why we continue to look at prophecy, even in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, because it all is pointing an arrow forward. All of these things, Leviticus chapter 23, you might read if you have a, a subtitle above the chapter in your Bible, Laws of Religious Festivals, and you might go, big deal, we don't do those. That's nothing to do with me. Move on, what's in chapter 4? The lamp and the bread of the sanctuary? No, nope, not for me, not for me. Sabbatic year, chapter 25? No, that's not for me either. And you just keep going until you find something that seems maybe relevant to your day. Gang, Leviticus 23 is one of the most powerful prophetic scriptures in all the Bible. Keep watch. Keep your eyes open. This Bible is full of clear indications of what God has planned and of what He's doing. What He has planned and what He's doing. The Lord, by the way, references the second coming of Jesus 1,845 times in the Bible. It is the dominant theme, His second coming, not the first, the second coming is the dominant theme of 17 Old Testament books. Old Testament. And it's referenced 318 times in the New Testament with an entire book devoted to God's prophetic and eternal plan, book of Revelation that we're studying on Sunday nights. By the way, a little commercial for you. If you haven't joined us yet, we have finished chapter 3. Next Sunday we go into chapter 4, which is when the church is in heaven. And it's a mind blower. So even if you haven't been to any of the studies, check it out. It's very cool. We're going to heaven next Sunday night. <laughs> Maybe before. Hopefully, and I won't have to prepare. Where was I? Seven, seven out of ten chapters in the Bible deal with prophecy. One out of twelve verses in the New Testament, one out of ten in the New Testament epistles, the letters written by Peter and, and James and the others. The first prophecy, by the way, spoken in the Bible, the first prophecy spoken was about the second coming of Jesus. You can read it in Jude 14. And the last prophecy given in the Bible, also about the coming of Jesus, Revelation 22, verse 20. 
Some might say, you know, why doesn't God just come right out and tell us what He's going to do? That's what He did. That's what He did. I mean, have you ever had that thought? Man, if I just knew what God was going to do next, then I'd be a little more peaceful. You know, it's right here. The problem is not whether or not God has told us. He wrote the letter. The question is, are we going to open it and check it out? Are we going to read it? So that we might be children of the light. Feasts of Israel. What does this have to do with prophecy? I'll tell you in a moment one last thing, and I've said this before, but I want you to understand what prophecy truly is. Prophecy is not guesswork. Maybe for... Who, who's the guy? Nostradamus? Maybe for him it was guesswork. You know, maybe when you're watching Alias, the prophecies on that show, guesswork. Actually, it's just the writers who don't have any idea what they're doing. That show's really gone down the tubes, by the way. I don't know if you've watched that. <laughs> I'm into it anymore. Anyway, prophecy, prophecy, I digress, prophecy is not guesswork, it's not what we think might happen. The Bible says this, so it might happen. It's not what we hope will happen. Well, I read it in the Bible, boy, I hope that comes true. It's what has already happened. What do you mean by that? From the perspective of God who is outside of time, He has seen it all take place. How's that for a mind bender for you? God has already seen it all take place. Therefore, what He tells us in prophecy is what has happened from His perspective and what is absolutely, positively assured to happen from our perspective. It's not guesswork. It's right there. God has already seen it and He's just filling us in. Leviticus 23. A powerful prophetic passage. In fact, it's so powerful. We're going to spend the next three, maybe four weeks right here in Leviticus 23 looking at these seven feasts of Israel. These seven feasts, seven celebrations God ordained. And these feasts will, will serve two primary purposes. If you're taking notes or want to take notes, you might want to jot these down. Two primary purposes for the feast that you will discover here in Leviticus chapter 23. And by the way, the feasts are talked about in other places. In fact, in more detail in other places. But right here, all together, God says, these are the things I want you to remember. These are the seven feasts I want you to keep. Right here, let's be clear about these things. And here are the two primary purposes for them. Number one is commemoration. Commemoration. To look back to what the Lord has done. To commemorate something of the past. Some great event that the Lord has done for the people or something that He's done in the past few months or over the past year. It's to commemorate, to thank, to think about what He has done in the past. But the second reason, and often missed, and certainly missed by many of the Jews at Jesus' first coming, the second reason is anticipation. For these feasts, wonderfully, were given to anticipate, to look forward to what God is going to do. And that's what I want you to see. As a matter of fact, as we go through the feast, I'm just going to be able to touch on a few things from each one of the feasts. We can't go full-blown into all the details, but I would encourage you this holiday season, as we look at the holy days of Israel, to take time and pick apart each feast. You will be blown away at how prophetically accurate they are in describing the coming of Christ. It's absolutely amazing. Well, how do you really know these feasts are prophetic? Aren't you reading more into these old customs than what's here, someone might ask? And I would answer with verse 4. God says, these are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the times appointed 
for them. The word appointed. The word appointed in the Hebrew is Moadah, or Moadah, and it not only indicates an appointment, it also indicates a pointing toward, a pointing to something. That these festivals, these celebrations, so important because they commemorate, they are an appointment each year annually for Israel to keep, but these appointments are appointing to something else. Showing something coming. An appointed sign, you might say. These appointed times are also appointed signs which point to the comings of Christ. Four, four of these feasts will happen in the springtime. They're the ones we're going to look at first. And all four of these first feasts that happen in the spring point toward or, or were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. To us, they would commemorate the first coming because it's already happened. But to the Jewish people at the time this was given, it pointed to Jesus' first coming. And he fulfilled the intricacies of all four of these first feasts in amazing ways. Some of them we've talked about, the Passover. You cannot study the Passover as a Christian and not see Jesus. The slaughtered lamb, the one who would pour out his blood to save a people. So four in the springtime fulfill the first coming of Christ, but three in the fall that we'll get to in a couple or three weeks, three in the fall will be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. And there are subtleties and there are messages in those last three feasts that indicate, that point to his second coming, and they're fascinating and they're exciting. Embedded in the appointed times of the Feast of Israel in Leviticus 23 are the appointed signs of Messiah. So with this in mind, let the feast begin. Begin again in verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. And say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. For six days, work may be done. But on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, we're going to look at three feasts today. If you're numbering them, this will be number zero, for it's not really one of the feasts. Okay? You start with zero for the Sabbath, and then number one will be the Passover in just a moment. But the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day is mentioned here first among the feasts. It would be an eighth mention, for there are seven feasts that are mentioned after this. The Sabbath day is mentioned for a particular reason. I'm going to give you one word to remember each one of the feasts by. And the Sabbath day is rest. Rest. Obviously, clearly. Now again, the Sabbath is not one of the major feasts, but it's connected to every major feast given to Israel. All of these seven feasts. And isn't it interesting? There are seven feasts. And when does the Sabbath day happen? On the seventh day. The Sabbath pointing to that number seven, that number of completion, which is also a number that points to redemption and rest. All things have been done as when Christ called out on the cross, all is finished. It is done. Sabbath, rest. There were seven feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we'll study, was seven days long. Pentecost is a feast of the seventh week. The Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles both came in the seventh month. And the Feast of Tabernacles also lasted for seven days. So Sabbath, Sabbath is woven throughout these feasts. It's a part of these feasts, but it's more of a yardstick for the feasts. It not only measures the feasts physically in terms of the number seven, but it measures them spiritually for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the means by which Israel could measure, rest, 
and redemption. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 tells us there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, before we blow by the Sabbath, let me just speak to this momentarily. Our American holiday season tends to be anything but restful. I know, I watched my wife on Thanksgiving Day and she exhausted me. She, I was just tired I had to go take a nap because she, she was working so hard and all the women are going what a jerk thank you thank you very much she worked so hard and you know that's what we do in the holidays we've got to get the gifts and we've got to schedule the parties and the plans we've got so much to do and, uh, and by the time it's all over we just want to go back to work so we can have some peace you know get back in the little cubicle and sit down behind the computer <laughs> Go right on back to sleep. (laughs) Dang, when it's all said and done, we get so little rest. And yet God's rest, the Sabbath rest, is an invitation to redemption that is true rest. And as believers in Jesus, it is that rest that He calls us to. Not something heavy, not something burdensome, not a weight that we have to carry. Going to church today. It's going to be good. I'm going to get through it somehow. And get to Mitchell's as quickly as possible. No, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if any of you find a Christian walk burdensome or religious or heavy, you have been misdirected. Jesus invites you to rest, to redemption, to walk in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 4. So the Sabbath is kind of the underlying background. It's woven through all these feasts. It's important in each one. But now we get to the first of the seven feasts, the Passover, verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the the times appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. One word, the Sabbath day, the word was rest. The word for Passover is rescue. Rescue. The Passover commemorates, that's the first thing, remember, commemorates and anticipates. It commemorated what happened for the people of Israel. You know the story. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They cried out to God. God heard them. He sent Moses to them. And after ten plagues, the last plague, the last plague was the worst. After the last plague, the people were rescued from Egypt. What was that last plague? It was the death angel. God sent the angel of death who killed all those who were firstborn in Egypt. And gang would have killed all the firstborn of Israel had they not followed through with the request of God. The slaying of a lamb. Slay a lamb. Pour out his blood in a basin at the base of the door. Take some hyssop. Dip it in the blood and wipe it along the door frame. And of course above, across the lintel. Making interestingly a cross as they would do it. Wipe the blood on the door. If there's blood on the door, I will pass over you. The Passover. That rescue. God was not just a bloodthirsty guy going, Okay, how can I show the people of Israel that this is serious? I'll have them slaughter a lamb. That'll be good. Yeah. Slaughter the lamb. Have some chops on the way out. God is pointing. He's pointing. He's pointing to another lamb. But again, it's, it's a commemoration for Israel. That time of their rescue... 
But if you've studied this at all, you know the Passover anticipated the first coming of Jesus. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. And Peter would say in 1 Peter 1-19 that we were redeemed with precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Passover was an appointed time for Israel that pointed to the time when Jesus himself would become our Passover lamb, our sacrifice. Now, a couple of things interesting in, in this. The lamb would be chosen. I want you to think through this. The lamb would be chosen on the... The lamb would be chosen on the tenth day of Nisan. The tenth day of Nisan. And it was kept by the Jewish family until the 14th day. It was nurtured. It was checked out. The children would play with it. We talked about this when we studied the Passover recently. It would become almost like a pet in the house. And the family would draw close to this little lamb. But four days later, that same little lamb would be brutally slaughtered, slain for the Passover sacrifice. Why is this? Well, what was the point behind this? Something just for you to consider. Chosen on the 10th day, sacrificed on the 14th day. Now, the Bible, if you're going to take the Bible literally, which I do, the Bible delineates 4,000 years from creation to crucifixion. 4,000 years from the beginning when God created to the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, Rick, we all know the earth is 6.4 billion years old. I don't know that. I know what the Bible tells me. Oh, Rick, you're just being foolish. You're being one of those religious guys. Okay. I'm alright with that. I'm okay with that. I don't think God's lying to us. I don't think He's messing with us. And by the way, I don't buy that opinion that says, well, we were just not smart enough, so God had to say seven days of creation, even though it really wasn't seven days of creation. Baloney! The Bible says it... Thank you. The Bible says it was seven days. And we can go back over this if you'd like to. Take me an extra half hour, an hour. What do you, you want to do? No, we won't do it right now. But we could. And we can look at how specific the Bible is about every single one of those seven 24-hour periods. And following, again, the course of Scripture all the way up to the crucifixion of Christ, gang, 4,000 years. From Christ to now, 6,000 years. The earth is not as old as people think. And most scientists today, the smart ones anyway, are getting on board with the reality of a young earth, not an old earth. Not billions and billions of years old. And I'd like to have Carl Sagan here to talk to us about the billions and billions of years, but he knows the truth now. No longer being with us. <laughs> Peter says the following, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. This is interesting. Listen to this. Beloved with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like one day. This is critical to understand about this verse. This doesn't mean that every time a year is mentioned in the Bible or a thousand years that it means a day. Okay? This is saying from God's perspective, not from man's perspective, two different perspectives. When we think about a day, how long is a day for you? Let me just ask the question. How many hours in a day? 24. For us. Okay? From our perspective, a day is a day. But from the Lord's perspective, a thousand years is like a day. It goes like that. Why? Because he's outside of time. But applying that principle and thinking about this from God's perspective, it's interesting there were 4,000 years from the creation to the crucifixion. 4,000 years. The Lamb was selected on the 10th of Nisan and four days later, four days later, the Lamb would be sacrificed. Was Jesus selected 
at the beginning of creation? Revelation 13.8 tells us he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Again, this is not haphazard. God has been weaving this together for 6,000 years, the entire history of this planet. The crucifixion, my friends, was not an afterthought. It was a forethought. God knew how he was going to save us before we needed saving. In the same way, the Passover lamb provided protection and relief for the people of Israel and rescue from the heavy hand of Egypt. Christ, our Passover, rescues us from the weight of the world. One other interesting thing about Passover, and we're going to move on from this one. It tells us on the night Jesus was betrayed, he shared Passover with his apostles. He changed it for us. We already shared what he changed it into this morning. Communion, the Lord's Supper. He took this feast and he said, now I'm going to put a new spin on it, a new remembrance, as Jim talked about, a new way to remind you of how precious this is. I'm going to share this meal with you and then you continue to remember me by taking it together. Well, after he did, Matthew notes something interesting. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, maybe you would never think of this. I am surprised I did. Well, no, I think of weird things. But I wonder, what hymn was it? You know? Was it all hail the power of Jesus' name? I mean, that'd be cool if Jesus was singing that song. (laughs) But what hymn was the song they sang? I think we can know or at least have a guess. Because at the end of the Passover celebration, Jewish tradition called for the singing of a group of psalms. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, the psalms are called the Hallel. The Hallel, or the praise. Psalms of worship. Listen to Psalm 118, verse 21. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The chief cornerstone. The rejected stone. Now, I can't prove this, and we're going to have to talk to Jesus about it later to to know the truth behind this, but I sense, I think possibly, as they sung that hymn, it was most likely a Jewish Hallel, one of the praise psalms, I think this is the one it was. The psalm about the chief cornerstone that was rejected by the leaders and the authorities, but acceptable and beautiful in God's sight. Jesus was about to be rejected that very night. As they sang that song, Judas was out betraying him, and the leaders would come, and very soon, within hours, Jesus would be outright rejected by the world. But that chief cornerstone that was rejected, remarkable, game, became our chief cornerstone, our rescue, our salvation. Now, right on the heels of the Passover comes the second feast of Israel. Verse 6, reading on. The second feast listed here. Then, on the 15th day... Remember the Passover happened on the 14th day. On the 15th day of the same month, there is a feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. Laborious work. Those two days are the Sabbath. Okay, so again, the Sabbath is working its way into these feasts. The second feast of Israel. First is the Passover. The second is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you're tracking these things in your notes, Sabbath means rest. The Passover means rescue. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, number three, is removal. Removal. 
removal. It literally happened the very next day, immediately the day after the Passover, they began the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now what does this feast commemorate for Israel? Looking back, what does it commemorate? The idea was to remind the Jews of that night when they were preparing to leave with haste to get out of Egypt. The blood already applied, already had the people then been rescued from the angel of death. Now, the very next step was get out, get ready to go, and you will have a feast of unleavened bread, travel bread. No time to bake it, no time to put the leaven in it and let it rise. You pack it up, unleavened, and get out. It is about removal commemorating for the Jewish people that time when they would leave Egypt. And even today, the ritual is continued, continually observed among Jewish people. The eating of unleavened bread. Frank will tell you, he hated it growing up. Seven days. Blah. You know, the unleavened bread over and over and over in preparation for... Oh, I'm sorry. In preparation for this, going back prior to Passover, in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread... Jews would do what we now today call spring cleaning. And that's where we got the phrase. Spring cleaning. There would be a cleaning of the entire house. A removal of all leaven from the house. And today again, there will be a spring cleaning. The Jewish people will have different sets of dishes. One set of dishes they will use for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Another set of dishes they use the rest of the time of the year. Why? Because they didn't want to have any leaven (laughs) caught on some of their plates. Sometimes it would be as extreme as, and Frank can, can fill you in more on this, but sometimes as extreme as two ovens. Wouldn't even cook in the same oven. There would be one oven that they'd use during the Feast of Unleavened Bread because you don't want to get any leaven in it. Oh no. And of course, religion and heaviness comes in and it becomes a burden to keep this feast. But the feast was about removal. Bible students, what is leaven a picture of in the Bible? Sin. Excellent. And what is Egypt a picture of in the Bible? What? What? The world. Great, great. Hey, listen, if you're giving an answer, jump out there and be brilliantly wrong sometimes. It's okay. The world. Leaven is a picture of sin. Egypt is a picture of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread anticipated removal. It anticipates for us the removal from the world, the removal of sin from our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough just a little sin is all it takes gang to get you just a little bit you don't need a lot of sin to get ousted from any possibility of eternal salvation and guess what every single one of us has at least a little sin most of us who think we just have a little sin have a whole lot of sin that we're just not paying attention to But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. That's what we're all supposed to be, new lumps. Bunch of new lumps. (laughs) Just as you were in fact unleavened. And he says, For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The feast of the unleavened bread anticipates the removal of sin. That didn't happen when the Jewish people were celebrating it until Jesus came. But when Jesus came... That feast of unleavened bread now takes on the significance of removal. The removal of sin from the world. The removal of the people from the world. You are in the world, but you are no longer of the world. Now, something interesting about this, you may have heard this before. 
Bethlehem. We sing a little town of Bethlehem each year at Christmas time. And anyone who's visited Bethlehem or seen pictures of Bethlehem, it's not as romantic as you think when you sing, I'm sorry to tell you. It's actually kind of a tourist trap. Not a nice place. But Bethlehem, the name, the name means house of bread. House of bread. Jesus said this about himself, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Who comes to, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. He says in verse 41, John chapter 6, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. In verse 48 he says again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, Jesus says, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread of heaven, the bread of life, was born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. I love these coincidences. Just amazing. But it raises a question. And the question is this, with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if this truly points to Jesus and points to His removal of sin and to His character, then the question is, was Jesus truly unleavened? Was He really completely sinless? Because according to Scripture, He had to be for the sacrifice to work. Otherwise, it's no good. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. You sin, you die, that's the deal. And you might say, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus died, didn't he? And if the wages of sin is death and Jesus died, that means sin. Absolutely. Weighed down with the sin of the world on his shoulders. But Jesus was innately, intrinsically sinless. Unleavened, wasn't he? Psalm 16 verse 10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you want to flip there, go ahead and do that for a moment. Rick, what is the purpose of flipping in my Bible if you're just going to read it to me anyway? So that you can take notes... So that you can know where these books are. And by the way, it's in the New Testament, so keep going to the right so you get there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. And there is reason for us flipping to these passages, as you know. So you might know your own Bibles and be familiar with the pages. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter is reaching back as he begins a fantastic sermon. And he said the following, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover my flesh also will live in hope, because, and this is the verse we just read, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
If you have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Why did Jesus' flesh not suffer decay like anybody else? Because he was unleavened. Because though he bore the sin of humanity on his shoulders and died the sacrifice for that sin, he himself was still perfect. He himself was still unleavened. And unlike all other people, by the way, who were resurrected by Jesus, like Lazarus, or Jairus' daughter, the synagogue leader's daughter, or others mentioned in Scripture, they all died again. They all were subjected to decay because they all were leavened and sinful, just like you and I. But not Jesus. Not Him. Jesus was perfect, sinless, the unleavened bread of heaven. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorated the removal from Egypt, but it also anticipates the removal of sin by the perfect unleavened bread who is Jesus. And this great news is anticipated now in the next feast, feast number three, the last one we'll look at this morning, the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits, back in Leviticus 23, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf. You may remember the old hymn, Bringing in the sheaf. This is where they get it. You shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted or delighted, depending on how you want to translate that word. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, what is this about? This feast actually isn't a feast at all. <laughs> the feast of first fruits, there was no eating of the first fruits. The first fruits were brought to the Lord. So it's really more of a celebration than a feast. But it commemorated year in and year out for the Israelites the fruitfulness of the land. Okay, this is not reaching back to Egypt now. This would be when they came into the Promised Land. Every year they celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. The first fruits that, that grow in the land. That first sheep they would bring out, bring it to the priest, and he would make a wave offering as they celebrated, commemorating, commemorating the fruitfulness of the last year, the growth in the ground, and, listen, anticipating the rest of the harvest that would come in. Commemorating the harvest which had come in and anticipating the rest of the harvest which would soon follow. Now track this closely. First on the 14th of Nisan, the Passover lamb was killed. The first feast. That feast of rescue. Then on the 15th, the Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. That second feast, the feast which is... Let's see, what R word did I give you for that feast? Removal. Removal. Good. Then, finally, after the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath, the first fruits is celebrated. 
the day after the Sabbath. Keep that thought in mind. Now there were several sacrifices that were part of this first fruit celebration. Verse 12 tells us, Now on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering a fourth of a hen of wine. Just a hen of wine. And verse 14, Until this day, until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread, nor roasted grain, nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statue throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. In other words, until you bring the offering of first fruits, you don't eat of the first fruits. And may I just add as a side note, this has always been God's way of dealing with generosity and giving among believers. That He says, don't even eat of the first fruits. Bring first, then eat second. Giving, tithing, gain is a first fruits issue. And I leave this between you and the Lord to consider. But oftentimes when it comes to giving in a church, people will look at the budget, think about the bills, work it out and go, we really can't afford to give more than X amount this this month because we've got to pay all these other things. God would say, well, you can do it that way or you can trust me and give a determined amount first and then watch how I bless you for the rest. But that's between you and the Lord. You consider that. You talk to Him about it. But did you notice there's something missing here in these offerings and these sacrifices for the Feast of First Fruits? Something is not given. There's no guilt offering. There's no sin offering. Why? Because the first fruits, listen, anticipates the resurrection of the sinless Jesus, who became the sin offering and settled the sin question once and for all. Jesus himself said, John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. The feast of first fruits and Christ would be, is our first fruit. The first one, Jesus explaining the need for his own death, said if a grain falls into the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Listen, I love this. Each in his own order. Christ of the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming, the feast of first fruits gang, anticipated Jesus because Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first fruits. Now, by the way, which day was the day of the Feast of First Fruits? It was the day after Sabbath, which would have been when? Sunday. Sunday was the day First Fruits was celebrated. What happened on Sunday in history? Yes! Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. The first fruits of those who would be resurrected. And that was the very day that they celebrated first fruits on a Sunday. But this should thrill us to the core. The Feast of First Fruits commemorates the first of the harvest, but it also anticipates much more to come. Not just Christ, the first fruits, but a whole lot of other fruits are on the way are going to follow, are going to be raised. And some of them might say, well, you Christians, you're a bunch of fruits. And I'd say, yes, we are. 
Absolutely, I will own that title because that's the title of my Lord Jesus. He was the first fruit and we're a bunch of fruits. We're a fruit basket of believers and we are following the Lord. We will be raised in the way that Jesus was raised. And Colossians 3 verse 4 tells us if you have died in your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with Him in glory you bunch of fruits. Amen. Now make sure you have this all down. In the Feast of the Passover, we see Jesus rescuing the sinner from the weight of the world. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we see Jesus removing the sin that brings death and eternal decay. And in the Feast of First Fruits, we see clearly Jesus reaping a harvest, the first fruit himself, but secondly, bringing in the harvest of all those who would believe in him, the festival of the Feast of First Fruits. And these first three feasts, gang, interestingly, were all scrunched together over a weekend of time, and they commemorated what God had obviously done for Israel. But they also anticipated what Christ would do in the future. All of these were fulfilled in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. You have looked at all three this morning in these feasts of Israel. But why again? Why, with feasts that not only commemorated the past, but so powerfully anticipated the future, did the Jewish leaders miss the Messiah? Why didn't they see the Savior? Why, ultimately, did they cut off the Christ? One last passage, and we'll be done today. Flipping your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. It's about in the middle. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Follow along. Verse 8. Listen to this. Listen, my beloved. Behold, he is coming. Now, by the way, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, this is a love story. This is a romantic poem that is graphic in its nature. If you've read it, we were, we were just watching um, The Homecoming. Have you seen The Homecoming with the, the Waltons? Homecoming movie. It's a Christmas movie. Anyway, we were watching it the other night. And there's a scene where all the kids are kind of gathered around. There's this missionary woman who has come to the hills. And, and she's giving out gifts to all the poor heathen children. She's hilarious. But as she's doing that, she says she wants a verse from everyone before they can come up and give a gift. Well, Mary Ellen. Right? Mary Ellen? Yeah. The oldest Walton girl, she's sitting there feeding verses to the kids so they can run up and get their gift. And she starts feeding verses out of the Song of Solomon. And they're the rather graphic ones. And it's hilarious to see the, the missionary woman start to pale and sweat a little bit as she's giving out these gifts. Anyway, read through it on your time. It's a great, great book. But it's not just a love story between Solomon and his bride. It is fantastically prophetic in and of itself. Listen to verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming. He is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved, says the bride, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. Recognition on the part of the bride. My beloved, he's coming. He's coming. Who's the bride in in the Bible who's the bride indicate the church amen the church behold he is coming says the bride recognition he's on the way watch this verse 10 my beloved responded and said to me now the beloved speaks arise arise my darling my beautiful one and come along 
Behold, the winter's past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines. And the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. Oh, I wish I had time to tell you what all these things mean. And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, says the beloved, my beautiful one, and come along. Oh, the beloved is offering an invitation. Come to me, he says. The bride responds. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your form is lovely. This is the church, gang, the church saying, oh, we want to see you. Show us your glory. Lord, be here today. We want to experience you. We want to see you and hear from you. But then in verse 15, she says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards. While our vineyards are in blossom, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. But listen to what she says, verse 17. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. What is she doing? The beloved says, come away with me. Come on, let's elope. Let's go up into the hills. Let's be married. Let's run among the hills. And the bride says, oh, I want to see you. I want to hear you. But not until. Not until. Wait. Wait. Not yet. Until the cool of the day. Turn, my beloved. Oh, Jesus, I want you to come, but not yet. The 18-year-old teenager might say, I'm not married yet. Give me a year. Give me a chance to experience a little more of life. We might look at our schedules, our calendar, and go, wow, I really want Jesus to come, but, you know, if I could just have a couple more months, if I could just have a day or two, that would be great. Turn, my Lord, turn. I want to see you. So we come Sunday morning and we want to hear the Lord and see the Lord and experience the Lord, but turn, don't come yet. Wait. And then all of a sudden, chapter 3, verse 1, on my bed... Night after night, the bride continues to speak. I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. Can I give you a little clue? Part of the reason we have so much trouble seeing Jesus is we're not looking for his coming. We're looking for him to do just kind of what he does at a distance. You stay out there, Lord. You stay out there. I want to sing about you. Hear your voice, maybe even see your form, but but turn, Lord. And we wonder why we have, as the as the bride does, troubled dreams at night. Why we can't see him. So she says, I must arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I saw him, but did not find him. This is what happens, gang, when the bride says, turn away. I sought him. But I did not find him. The watchman, the watchman who made the rounds in the city has found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. And listen, I held on to him. I held on to him and I would not let him go. Who knew where he was? The watchman. The watchman knew where the beloved was. Scarcely had the bride come to see the watchman speak with him. Immediately she finds the beloved. She finds her love. And let me ask you this as we close. Are you putting off? Are you saying, turn, Lord. 
Are you putting off or are you holding on? I love this last verse. I held on to Him and would not let Him go. If you see Jesus this morning, you cling to Him and do not let Him go. You don't let the worries of the world or the things of the past and all the commemorations, even in our own sometimes silly holiday remembrances, don't cling to that stuff. You cling to Jesus and do not let Him go. When He says, Come, my love, dance with me among the hills. Come, it's time to go. Will you be one of the watchmen? Will you be ready? Will you be watching? Man, I read in the Feast of Israel that He was coming. I've been watching. Lord, I'm not surprised. As we've talked about, some are going to be surprised. Others are going to go, I know what's going to happen. I knew. I'm one of the watchmen. Christ is calling. Christ is calling. Why not answer Him today? Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we bow as a bunch of fruits. Lord, desiring our resurrection as we saw You in Yours. And desiring salvation. And desiring, our Beloved, that You would come. That we might dance with You among the hills. And praise Your name. That we might cling to You. Hold fast to all that You are. And as we pray this morning, if you happen to be one who is just starting to fall in love with Jesus, maybe you've never given your life to Him, would you just pray right now after me, Jesus, love me. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe in your death, in your resurrection. I see you in these, in these wonderful old feasts. And I want to feast with you in that great day when you come. So Lord, come into my life today. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. And teach me to walk after you that I might cling to you, Lord. And may all of our lives, Lord Jesus, whatever time we have left, whether it's a day, a week, a year, may we be watchmen. But not just watchmen, Lord. Maybe we be watchmen brides. Longing for your coming. Looking. Anticipating. And thrilled to the heart of our hearts. That you would love us so much. That you would come for us. And we pray that you'd come again. In Jesus' name. Amen.